Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Hello and welcome back to the One Minute Preceptor podcast where we tackle your clinical education, clinical rotation clerkship needs here with expert physicians and educators so we can try to give you the best information and guidance to make the most out of your clinical experiences. Now, we've been recording episodes for a little while now, but due to the immediacy of the importance of this topic, we decided to move this episode up to the front of the line. This episode in particular is going to cover some very difficult topics, some topics that are probably going to make you uncomfortable, and you may disagree with some of the things said, and that's perfectly fine. But there are also some simple things that we can do to change the current setting, to change the scenarios in which these events might occur. And yes, we're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about some very difficult topics, and we're also going to give you a lot of resources to help educate yourself if this is a topic that you might feel a little uncomfortable talking about, as I did during this episode. But getting uncomfortable is part of what we need to do to better ourselves and to better the healthcare system and our education systems. So without further ado, I want to welcome our very brave physician, Nicole Washington, on the first episode of the One Minute Preceptor podcast, season two. So I wanted to welcome you, Dr. Nicole Washington, to speak with us about, well, a lot of things that are going on right now and some very sensitive topics and topics that we probably are, well, definitely uncomfortable talking about, but probably shouldn't be as uncomfortable talking about. And this can happen in medicine, in our education, in our patient interactions. And I think discussing some of these topics are going to help enlighten us and and open us up a little bit more about how to discuss them. And we're going to talk about race and racism and anti-racism a little bit during this episode. But first, maybe I can give you a moment to introduce yourself and why this is important to you as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. I am uh, Dr. Nicole Washington. I am originally from Louisiana and I moved to Oklahoma to go to medical school 20 plus years ago. And it was a very interesting experience for me because for college, I'd gone to an HBCU, which is a historically black college and university. And so, you know, I grew up in Louisiana. I grew up in a, I grew up in a black neighborhood, but I always went to schools that were mixed. I went to magnet schools. So I went to pretty diverse schools growing up. And then I went to an HBCU, like I said, which was predominantly black. And then I came to Oklahoma for medical school. And truth be told, I don't know that I could have found Oklahoma on a map before I came here to interview, but it felt right. It felt like it was going to be a good fit. The school was smaller. I really liked the feel of everything. So here I go. And I get here and my first year class, there's two black people out of about 90 people. That was interesting, right? I mean, that was <laughs> to, to go from a school where everybody looked like me to a place where I was one of two. And that was the first time I had ever experienced that in my life, not in elementary school or middle school. <laughs> I like never had I had to try to 
maneuver through an education system where there were just two of us in my class. And so that, you know, definitely was the starting point for me realizing that this was going to be an interesting journey as it related to my race not being that of the majority. Just a huge lack of diversity. It's really a shell shock. Yeah, it, that, that's a great word for it. It, it, was, <laughs> I was, it was a rough time. That first month was pretty rough. So going through the first few years, did you notice anything in particular, any different treatment from your classmates, from instructors, anything along those lines? I think people tried to be as nice as they could be and as friendly as they could be. You know, there's little things like, People always asking me or the other Black guy, had we seen each other, if they were looking for one of us, even though we never hung out together and we really didn't even get along all that great. I mean, we we, we weren't enemies by any means, but we just weren't hanging out and studying together. And I think people just always assumed we were. And so we would always get like, hey, have you seen him? No. No, I haven't seen it. <laughs> hey, I'm looking for Nicole. Have you seen her? And he's like, no, I've not seen her. And that would get frustrating. You know, of course, you can't quite miss a class if you're the only Black female in your class. You can't quite not be there because it stands out. You know, we did have an incident at our school. We were second years and um, someone put a note in my locker We were starting back up our SNMA organization at the school, which is, you know, a historically black medical association for students born out of the fact that medical students, you know, first of all, black physicians could not join the AMA. And so the National Medical Association was started. And so then the Student National Medical Association was started after that for students of color because, you know, black students and black doctors weren't welcome in the AMA and whatever the AMSA, we just weren't welcome. So we had our own organizations. And so we got ours going again. And someone put a note in my locker with a colorful acronym for SNMA other than Student National Medical Association. We can all guess what they use for the N. And so that happened during my second year. And our, our administration, I think, tried to handle it as best they thought they could. They talked to both classes. You know, we will not tolerate this kind of behavior. You know, if you know who it is, say something. You know, I mean, we, they, they did that part. And the interesting part was the dean after that met with all the students. I think he, he meant well. He was giving us all the, you know, we need you here. We want you to stay. And I, don't, I mean, he I never really had any issues with him. At that point, there were six Black medical students on campus between the first and second year class. So the the class under me had four, which was huge, right? The one thing he said to us at the end was, he said, you know, your peers may want to talk to you about this and they may not know how. They may want to say something, but they may not know how to approach you. So his answer was for us not to congregate in a group, the group of six, because we might be intimidating to our peers. And and we were thinking, there's six of us, there's 180 of them. Like, like, there's six Black people in this whole two, you know, in the first and second year, there's 180 people who aren't. But we're, okay, we're not supposed to group because we're intimidating. That was a moment, I think, for us where we all thought, okay, this is interesting. This is different. And then you get into third year, right? You get into third and fourth year. And as a Black student, as a Black female student, 
you really have to check yourself, you know, for your listeners out there who are, you know, women or black women or indigenous women or, you know, brown women, you have to ask yourself, you know, when an attending or a resident is giving you crap, you almost have to step back for a second and try to think through how is this person with other people? Because you have to process through, why are they being mean to me? It could very well be they're just mean all third years. They're not all medical students, right? Like it could, it could be that you are just a medical student and this person likes to scut out medical students and they just are mean to the medical students in general. And if you can see that pattern, then you can kind of step back and go, okay, well, this has nothing to do with nothing. Some of it might be because I'm a woman, right? There's still male attendings and even some residents who don't believe that, you know, women should be in medicine, right? Because we're out here trying to have babies and stuff. We shouldn't be doing that if we're going to be in medicine. So sometimes they're just mean to women. And sometimes it might be because you're black or because you're indigenous, because you're brown. You know, it might be that. You kind of have to take a second to step back and figure out why it is that this person is not treating you fairly. And third and fourth year also brings with it a different layer because there is the, you know, patient who doesn't want to see you because you're black. There's you walk in the room and you say you're the medical student. And to be honest, it happens to me even as an attending, I can walk in a room with my long white coat and they will assume that the person is there to pick up the tray. You know, so those kind of things that you will see happen. And it's those little things that happen every day or multiple days a week that lead you, you know, as a student of color trying to maneuver through medical school that, that make it a little bit tougher. And see, that's very interesting. So many things you just said are very interesting. First off, I never knew the history of the SMMA and I never realized, although I should have probably known not being very familiar with the history of medicine in general, that there was that division, there was that blockage of certain physicians from joining the AMA. So that's probably something that a lot of students now are not familiar with, that have never been taught in school. And probably a good thing to realize, to to see that this has been ongoing for a long time and there are still issues that we need to work through and finding maybe potential solutions to that is... uh, is kind of the point of bringing up the topic, I suppose, in this episode. And I'm guessing that there probably weren't too many people of color in your administration when you went to school? No, my first year we had a dean, one of the assistant deans, who was an older black lady, but I think she retired at the end of my first year. And I am not aware that we've had any since then. Okay. So there's not a lot of diversity in the administration. So they don't know how to handle these problems when they arise. They're going to take the typical standoffish approach and not being aware of potential solutions or how their supposed solutions are going to reflect on people of color. They do an inadequate job. Absolutely. And I think we've even seen that recently with schools feeling the need to make a statement, right? Everybody, it it was kind of like, do we make the statement? Do we not? What do we look like if we make it? What do we look like if we don't say anything? You know, and I, I'm pretty sure a lot of schools were stressing about what do we do. And some of the statements, you could tell that there's nobody, nobody on in the administration that could have said, hey, I think that line should not have been said. Or you, you just could tell that there was, you know, little help. Maybe there's a diversity office, but um, not even all the schools have diversity offices. So, 
I guess the term there, which I've seen a lot in, in schools, in companies, just everywhere you look in the past few weeks, there's been some sort of mentioning. And, and I'm hearing the term performance ally used a lot for these people that are speaking very quietly, but making no action towards positive change. I suppose, I'm not even sure how to ask this really. <laughs> is, there, is there something that we can do to encourage these schools, at least, if not the companies, to be more active? Or how to do that when there's not an administration that understands the problem? Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I see that administrations are really going to have to just make the decision that they're going to, you know, actively broaden their pool. You know, I mean, let's face it, a lot of times in academics, we kind of keep things internal. We don't always like outside people coming in, right? Because they're, they're outsiders. <laughs> they're, not, they're not one of us. And we just don't always like to, to bring in a lot of outside people. And, you know, I think they're going to have to make an effort, like just be very intentional about searching broad and wide and being open to more women or, you know, minorities or both, you know, just getting, getting some variety in there. Got it. I've seen this question brought up on several podcasts and different Facebook groups of how to encourage diversity, how to notice your own implicit biases, how to have more fair hiring practices even because we don't necessarily realize that as soon as we see a person's name or gender on an application, we already have biases. Those are just ingrained and many people don't want to admit that they have them or are aware that those exist. So I guess this is where the the systemic part of the issue comes in. We just can't even admit that there are different ways to go about it or investigate how to do that. And we all have biases. I mean, we all do. Like all of us have biases towards some group or another. We just do. And those those implicit bias tests that you take are great because they do bring that stuff to light. But just saying, oh, okay, those are my biases without action to figure out how to balance that out or how to correct that or, you know, how to not let your biases drive your decision-making, especially if you're in a place of power. We have to do more than just help people identify their biases. True. That's a good point. A lot of people have pushed back saying, well, implicit bias training, it's a step in the right direction, but then there's no correlative data afterwards saying that it makes a difference. So mm-hmm. there needs to be an extra step there as well. There's got to be something in there. I mean, it's, it's like the moving beyond diversity. For a long time, it was all about diversity. It was all about, we just need more. We need more. And I think what we've learned over the past several years, and especially recently, is diversity is great, but we have to move beyond diversity. I've heard the party analogy. I've heard the, so I'm from Louisiana and everything in my life, all my analogies are food related and related to like deep South food related. So, you know, I kind of think of it as like, you know, a crawfish bowl, right? Like I'm having a crawfish bowl. If I invite you, so if I'm having this all, you know, if there's this crawfish bowl and there's this here at my house and let's say, you know, all black people, right? And I'm going to invite you to my crawfish bowl. And I'm going to tell you to bring some friends and I'm going to invite you all. And then all of a sudden my crawfish bowl is diverse, right? Like it's, it's great. It's diverse. It's more than just black people there. It's diverse. And then the inclusion part comes in though. If I never talked to you, I haven't included you. 
if I just say, hey, I'm inviting you to this event, this function, and you get there and you diversify the crowd, that's fantastic. But if I never make any effort to include you and I never introduce you to people and I never make sure that you feel like, oh, you really wanted me here, right? Like if I'm like, hey, everybody, this is, this is Chase. This is my new friend. Hey, come over here and meet, you know. If I never talk to you, if I just go, oh, you're here, and I just go off to continue and to talk to my friends and never look your way, introduce you to anybody, some random person might be nice enough to come up to you and go, hey, you look lost or, you know, what's going on over here? But if I don't do my part to really include you, you're not going to feel like I wanted you there, right? Mm-hmm. And then I say, hey, come on, sit at the table. Then I've included you. You're sitting at the table with everybody crawfish on the table in front of you. I got to include you. And then if you even go a step further, you think about like the equity part of this, the equity part is that I actually show you how to eat the crawfish so you can actually leave full and fulfilled and feel like you've really had the whole experience. But if I don't go the extra step and I just invite you, then that doesn't get you to the end goal, which in this case is for you to be full and be content by the end of the night. Got it. There's a term that we're hearing thrown around a lot more lately than I believe has been predominant in the past anyway, and that is the term allies. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be a somewhat conflicting definition on what this actually means. And I guess it means different things to different people and in different scenarios slightly. But curious, despite the definition of it, how does one even become an ally? Because you don't want to go to a friend of yours that's a person of color or just a random person say, all right, how do I learn about this? That, that gets very annoying. It's very confrontational. What is a good way for someone maybe to learn about how to be a better ally? In medicine, we are all about research. We're all about our searches. We're all about looking things up. You know, we can research a topic to death, right? This is no different. There's no reason to go to, you know, the one or two black people in your school or, you know, the small handful of black people in your circle if you don't have people in your circle that you're very close to and ask them, so, hey, what, what about this? And what about that? And what about... Those conversations are typically much better received when you've put the work in and you've done the... Re- and you have some level of knowledge, right? You, you're not going to go to your cardiology rotation and ask your attending, hey, tell me about blood pressure. What is that thing, right? You know some basic understanding of what blood pressure is. And if you come to them with a basic understanding of, you know, what is the problem? What are some of the possible, you know, actions and solutions? And you can be actively working to support them. People will see it. And there's no need to say, hey, I'm an ally or I want to be an ally. People, will they'll see it through your actions and through your work. I love that. Yeah, we don't generally jump into things as scientists, as students, especially in medicine, without some sort of background knowledge, without some sort of studying. And uh, we do have two links that we're going to add to the show notes here, which are a compilation of anti-racist resources that have been compiled by someone else online. They seem to be a very popular compilation that are going around right now for those that might not know where to start. There are books, there are research articles, there are podcasts, there are movies Mm -hmm. that can help give people a start if they want to investigate this. And if they don't want to investigate it, then you probably shouldn't be throwing around the word ally. Facts. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess more broadly, are there 
things that we should be looking for going forward in healthcare and in health education that can bring these topics to light, but also deal with them or, or advance these in a beneficial manner? You know, I think people hear about race and then their immediate thought is, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. I really shouldn't be talking about this kind of stuff. They see it as more of a political talk than being health related. And I think, you know, it is time for, I mean, really one of the, the best books, and I'm not sure if it's on this list. I'm looking to see if it's on there, but Medical Apartheid is a great read for a soon-to-be physician, right? And so it is a health issue in the sense that the systemic racism, a lot of it is what has led to a lot of these social determinants of health that we talk about in public health and that we should be talking about in medicine as affecting our patients. So the way that your patient is having to deal with racism and the systems in place that have made it to where the black neighborhoods don't have sidewalks and those patients can't, you know, walk or they don't have great schools and they don't, you know, those things that are affecting your patients negatively and affecting their health overall negatively. Those are things that we kind of have to be asking. We have to ask those questions. We have to find out. We have to go deeper. We can't just use the same cookie cutter advice that we give our patients who live in very nice neighborhoods and who have resources that we give the other ones, right? And we we do tend to do that sometimes. We say, oh, you should exercise more. You should walk in your neighborhood. Walking is free. Doesn't cost you a thing. But if they don't have sidewalks and maybe there's stray dogs and, you know, maybe they don't feel safe. And, you know, it's very different advice to give to someone who lives in a very affluent neighborhood and somebody who doesn't. So we have to, you know, dig a little bit deeper. And in mental health right now, a lot of Black America are taking a, a mental health hit, you know. Um, we were dealing with the fact that despite being only 12% of the population, we were a significantly larger percent of people who were coming down with COVID and dying from COVID. And so we were dealing with that, you know, that concern of each other of, oh my gosh. And it's not just being brown that makes you at increased risk of getting coronavirus, right? We, we figured that out here in the last month. I think we've beat that. We, that is, we got it. And then we have all of the unrest that's going on in our country. And we've seen the murders of Ahmaud Arbor and we've seen George Floyd and we've seen Breonna Taylor and we've seen, you know, and we're just kind of back to back to back and we're seeing these protests and we're, it's a lot. And so if you're going to be checking in on your patients of color, it's not political. It's moved into a health concern for you to ask the question. Yeah. And that is something that's been very frustrating with conversations I've had is I have to get shut down saying, oh, well, this isn't for politics. We're not talking politics here. This is a finance group. We're not talking politics here. This is a medical or healthcare group. No, we're not talking politics. We're talking life. And this is a part of finances. This is a part of healthcare. This is our community that make up the individuals, the participants in these aspects of life. And I think I recently heard that for every time there's um, some sort of negative news cycle, not just negative news cycle, but negative events such as Ahmad, such as Brianna, such as the COVID and disparities there, that it takes a physical and mental toll on the Black community and on people of color. Every time it's stacking up one after another that they feel they don't have the power to make changes. And there's video with it, right? So in addition to even hearing about it, 
we have these videos circulating social media where you're seeing. I had to change my settings, but I accidentally watched the Ahmaud Arbery murder. Like I, I saw this video. It just randomly started playing as soon as I scrolled over it. And I had no idea what it was because I hadn't heard about the story yet and I hadn't, I didn't know. And then I, and then I realized what I watched and I, and it, it was, I mean, it was traumatizing. It was not something I would have chosen to watch because typically when I know those videos are circulating, I just won't look at them. I don't need to see people that look like my husband and my son and my uncle and, you know, my loved ones being shot and killed. Like, I don't need to see that. I agree. Besides the trauma that it can do, to a person of color, I could understand how the argument is also made that white people should watch those so they can better understand the trauma that a person of color feels every time they see these going around. I mean, I've heard that. (laughs) As a psychiatrist, sometimes I do wonder if anybody should be watching people get murdered and the trauma that that brings. But I will honestly say this. I think that that's the conflict, right? I don't feel like I need to see the video, right? But clearly having the video has caused some people who otherwise, because of their implicit bias, who otherwise would have just assumed, well, surely what were they doing wrong? Like, surely they'd done something wrong. Watching the video has helped them to see things maybe in a different angle, mm-hmm. in a different way. So I, I, I can say that it seems that that has been what it has taken to, to get people to go, okay, maybe there's a problem. Mm-hmm. It might be too easy to shove it down Otherwise, but when it's... Once you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. once you've actually seen it, it's a little harder to shove it down. You're right. Well, I'm definitely going to add medical apartheid to our recommended reading list resources in the show notes here. Do you have any other resources that you would recommend to the audience? I like medical apartheid for students. I can't think of anything right now. It's a good start, though, because I think it definitely gives you a framework of how Black people in general, and these are all generalities, kind of see the healthcare system and some of the mistrust that is there. And you can kind of get to the part where you can see, get to the point where you can see why that is. And I think it's important, you know, everybody's talking about these conversations as being difficult. And they say, oh, these are very hard conversations and these are hard. It's so hard. It's very hard. And that's all I've heard is how difficult it is. And I, you know, I just think it's not necessarily that it's difficult, but it's very uncomfortable. Where your students are right now, you know, your medical students, and if you're in your first year, and if you're in your second year, you know, everything's uncomfortable when it comes to patient interviews, unless you've worked in that medicine or healthcare before. It's difficult. And it's uncomfortable. I I shared uh, (laughs) with you before we started recording that I used to teach one of those first year you know, learning how to interview courses at the medical school here. And, you know, the students would have a hard time. It was really uncomfortable asking ladies the age of their mom and grandma about their sex lives or about their vaginas, period, or female students talking to males who were the same age as their dad and grandpa about their sexual functioning and, erect- and you know, erectile dysfunction and things like that asking about physical abuse and sexual abuse and those kinds of things. So we ask uncomfortable things all the time, but we ask them enough that they become comfortable. 
So I would say by the time you're a fourth year, you don't bat an eye asking somebody about their sex history or their sex life or if they had a vaginal delivery or C-section or you just don't think twice about it because you see it as part of what you do. I think we're at the point where we'll have to find some way to add these kinds of conversations into our HPIs so that we have a really much better understanding of what our patients are going through so that we can then develop a more informed treatment plan for them on the back end. I think that's a great point and great advice. Even being finished with my four years, I I still find these very uncomfortable, very difficult just (laughs) through this interview. Even though we had a little prelude beforehand, I'm not sure how to say certain things, how to phrase it. You don't want to say the wrong thing and you're afraid of being labeled a certain way from phrasing something a certain way. But the only way to really get past that, as you said, is to talk about it, is to gain that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have any other topics that you think are very important to discuss with the student audience? You brought up the, you know, sometimes we don't say things because we're scared we're going to say the wrong thing. And I will say, I stick my foot in my mouth, you know, a lot seeing patients over the years. I mean, I've, I've said things I go, oh, that was not the smartest thing I could have said. If I catch myself right after I say it, I will actually say to the patient, oh, that, that was not really, I don't think that sounded right. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think that sounded, I, I think that came out wrong. Let me try that again. You know, if I'm struggling with how to ask a certain thing, I just go out and say it, you know, we talk about privilege and, and that gets, anytime you bring up the word privilege, people get really defensive and everybody's ready to fight, right? Because nobody wants to admit they have any kind of privilege whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And we all do. I mean, as a, even, you know, for me, I'm a, I'm a physician, right? That comes with a level of privilege. The amount of income that I have comes with it a level of privilege I did not have 30 years ago growing up, right? It just is the fact. Being a Christian heterosexual woman in this country, and especially in the area of the country where I live, that gives me a certain level of privilege, right? I'm never going to have to worry about, am I going to be able to find somewhere to worship? You know, are people going to look at me like something's wrong with me because of my religion? You know, I I don't, I'm not going to experience that where I live right now. I'm not going to have to worry about, I'm married to a man, so I'm never going to have to worry. You know, I'm not worried about the things that people assume about you. So, you know, I would say just being mindful that we all have a certain level of privilege. And I constantly have to remind myself that just because I am a cisgendered, heterosexual Christian lady in the Midwest, that that comes with it a lot of privilege. And I have to realize that everybody is not that. So, you know, when you're interviewing patients, one of the things, you know, I'm very mindful of is not to say to a female patient, imply that they're married to a man, right? Like I try not to make any assumptions about anybody's anything. I just try to, you know, I, I try not to assume they're Christian because I am, right? Or I try not to assume that they're in a heterosexual relationship because I am. And so the way that we were, we used to be taught about the you know, social history, I think we have to change that a little bit for the times that we live in now. So asking people about their pronouns and asking people, you know, specifically about their orientation and asking them about their gender and asking that, you know, those are questions that we just never really asked before. And we have to be careful not to make assumptions. 
we need to get uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, but just not be well, not making assumptions. Because I, I think there are a lot of times I've assumed when they were talking about a partner, assumed that it was a husband because they were a woman. And mm-hmm. I know that that assumption came from the fact that I'm a woman with a husband and I was seeing it from my own lens and not thinking, oh, I should be asking them, you know, is it a husband? It could be a wife, right? And mm-hmm. I, you know. Yeah, we all, all make assumptions based on our own experiences. And sometimes they make no sense. We can even make assumptions against our own in-group. And it, it's interesting to see how our mind just goes to certain patterns. But I think that's just a part of how our brain works. And that's not something to be afraid of. It's just something to understand that it's there and understand that we can get past that as well. And be willing to check yourself when you do it. Like, mm-hmm. I've never had a problem in front of a patient saying, oh my gosh, I am so, you know, I, I will apologize in a heartbeat. And I will just say, you know what? I am so sorry that I totally just assumed that you were married to a man. I'm so sorry. And then we'll go into the conversation. I think people appreciate that level of honesty mm-hmm. and transparency, especially if you then take the time to figure out what exactly is going on with them. But if we can train our brains to lean that way from the beginning, it will make life so much easier. Agreed. Where can the audience find out more about you? I am on pretty much all social media platforms at Dr. Nicole Syke. So D-R-N-I-C-O-L-E-P-S-Y-C-H on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those places. Well, I want to thank you again so much, Dr. Nicole Washington, for coming on and talking about these really difficult subjects with us. No problem. 